This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. After the school shooting in Highlands Ranch Tuesday, determined words this morning from the district attorney, George Brockler. We're going to mourn, we're going to weep, we're going to take care of those who are down and pick ourselves back up. But who we are is we are a kind, compassionate, caring people. And this does not define us. It won't today and it won't tomorrow. These are aberrant acts. Problem is, when you get three, four, or five of them within a 20-mile radius, you begin to think they're less aberrant. But I'm here to tell you this is not who we are. Our school district is awesome. Our school district is safe. And my kids are going to go to school today, and I recommend everyone else send their kids to school too. Not possible, though, for the 1,800 or so kids at STEM School Highlands Ranch, which is a crime scene and will be closed through the end of the week. CPR's Natalia Navarro is here with an update on a school shooting that has left one student dead, eight others injured. Hi, Natalia. Hi, Ryan. We've now learned one of the two suspects is female. What can you tell us? The Douglas County Sheriff, Tony Spurlock, originally thought that both suspects were male based on their appearance. One is an adult. One is a juvenile. Uh, They're now saying the juvenile suspect is female. Both suspects are students at the STEM school. Um, The district attorney we just heard from, George Brockler, has not determined if the juvenile will be charged as an adult or what charges either suspect will face. Um, But we know that the male suspect, the 18-year-old, will be in court this afternoon for an initial advisement hearing. I should note that uh, today George Brockler asked that the media approach this case from the no-notoriety point of view, meaning don't use their names whenever possible. Uh, And I should also note that the juvenile's name has not been released Uh, Let's talk about what happened at STEM school K-12 in Highlands Ranch. Uh, We know that the two students entered the middle school portion of the campus, each with a handgun, just before 2 p.m. yesterday. Yes, we know they came in through the north door. We don't know where they got those handguns. They shot students in two different locations, so they were split up. Nine students were shot. One died at the school, not at a hospital. Deputies were at the school within two minutes of the emergency call, they said this morning. And by then, a school security guard had restrained one of the suspects. Deputies got the other. Law enforcement did not exchange gunfire with the suspects, um, and neither suspect was hurt. They're both in custody now. Law enforcement is not commenting on a possible motive yet. Sheriff Spurlock said it will take several days to process the crime scene, and the FBI is helping with that. There are around 600 students that were either witnesses to this shooting or involved in some way. So that's a lot of people to interview. That's going to take some time. The Center for Homeland Defense and Security notes that it's highly unusual for a school shooting to involve two people. The vast majority are carried out alone. Of course, there were two in the Columbine attack, but generally speaking, it's not the case. Uh, What about the students who were injured, Natalia? The coroner has not released the name of the student who has died yet. Uh, We know he was 18 years old and that he would have graduated at the end of this week. The eight students who were hurt were taken to area hospitals. Five of them have been released, uh, but three remain in intensive care, recovering. All of their injuries are from being shot. And we know that there were some surgeries that had to be conducted on some of them. Douglas County Sheriff Tony Spurlock had this message today for the victims, their families, and the community. Our hearts um, are hurting uh, for them. And, you know, I ask the community to uh, come together, as we always do here in Douglas County, and be strong, <clears throat> excuse me, and, uh, and pray for the family of the child that was lost 
and the other eight who are injured and still suffering from their injuries, and then the other remaining almost 1,800 kids that were at the school um, that uh, had to uh, be a part of this um, uh, terrible tragedy. Spurlock said he believes there will be many stories of heroism to come out of what happened in the days ahead. Uh, Governor Bullis also spoke at this morning's press conference. What did he have to say? He thanked the first responders and the school staff for their quick actions yesterday. He said we owe them a debt of gratitude. He himself is a father of two young children and said it's hard to imagine, quote, the horror and the grief that the victims' families must be feeling right now. You know, I think at this point, Coloradans are really heartbroken, frustrated, still shocked, and and frankly sick over uh, a mass shooting occurring right here in Douglas County. You know, schools should really be places where students can learn and grow, safe places, Uh, And we shouldn't have to worry about being marched out or having being airlifted to hospitals or even losing one's life uh, in a place that's supposed to be a safe place for all students. You know, time and time again, Coloradans have proven how resilient we are. And this time is no different. Yes, we come together in grief. We also come together to heal And we come together to figure out what we can do better as a state and as a society. And indeed, lots of questions will be asked about how to prevent shootings like this. And I suppose much of that will be revealed if there's a court process that moves forward. Natalia, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. That is CPR's Natalia Navarro updating the investigation into the school shooting in Highlands Ranch. And stay with CPR News and CPR.org as this story develops. Right, more on that deadly school shooting elsewhere in this program right now. The Denver mayor's race. No candidate got half the vote last night, so there will be a runoff June 4th between Michael Hancock, who has the job now, and Jamie Gillis. Gillis will join us shortly. Right now, Mayor Hancock is on the line. Welcome back to the program, sir. Ryan, good. At morning, almost at afternoon. Good morning to you. I'm glad to be with you. As I do the math, uh, this could be a difficult runoff for you. Um, you were the top vote getter at 40 percent. But if voters who went for other candidates throw their support behind Gillis, uh, she's got you beat. How do you overcome that? Well, you know, listen, every runoff is a challenge. Uh, we're ready for it. And, you know, the chances of someone getting 100 percent of the votes coming their way is very, uh, very slim. Um, the reality is I believe we, we go out there, we work hard, uh, we hit the ground, we knock on those doors, and we have the conversations that I think the people of Denver want to have with regards to the future direction of the city and the vision for the city. So I'm ready for it. I'm the, I'm the one who's been in a runoff before and uh, have a sense of how these things work out. When you say that the chances are very slim that voters for other candidates would go entirely to Jamie Gillis, what do you base that on? Well, I mean, just just the reality is that people will reassess that their candidates are no longer in the race. Um, you know, the reality is this. Both of us have to hold our base, hold the people who voted for us, and have to go out and fight for those who voted for other candidates and hope they turn out, as well as try to convince others to come out to vote. So, you know, I've been involved in politics in Denver since the age of 13. I've watched runoffs with uh, candidates like Wellington Webb and Federico Pena, both who were phenomenal mayors who ended up having runoffs in their second-term races. And uh, you know what? And matter of fact, uh, 
Uh, Wellington came in second in his runoff, uh, uh, at least in his second re- or in his reelection effort, uh, only to win it. Um, and so there are those votes out there to win, and and people want to know what your vision is for the city of Denver. So I'm ready to go out and give it to them. Well, let's talk less horse race and more policy. So uh, first off, what message do you take from the runoff? Uh, In other words, do you see in the fact that you didn't garner more than 50 percent of the vote a message from the people of Denver? Oh, absolutely. I think, one, people have uh, recognized that this city has been rapidly changing. I mean, no city has transformed as rapidly um, as Denver has, as dramatically as Denver has has in the last 10 years. And people want to know what does this all mean to us in terms of our growth, in terms of uh, all the impacts of that growth, in terms of uh, congestion and housing prices and cost of living in Denver. And they want to know, Mayor, you've been in charge now for eight years and you've overseen a lot of this transformation. What's your vision for the city of Denver? And in two, you know, we want to be able to share thoughts with you. And I think that every candidate learns, uh, even incumbents during elections, these are tough but important conversations. And I've had those tough and important conversations, and I've taken away some lessons in terms of how people have felt like we haven't completely been involved in the city of Denver and we can do more. So, you know, I, I'm not too uh, proud to say that we, we, can't, we can't learn anything. We're always in a position of learning, and I've learned some things. Give me an example of a lesson you've learned. Uh, again, you know what? Uh, community engagement is very important to people. And don't assume just because you've had X number of people engaged uh, that you hold cabinet and community meetings and people get a chance to come talk to you one-on-one. You need to look at other means to engage people and to make sure you're always asking who else has not been involved, who else hasn't leaned in, who else is not aware of X, Y, and Z, and what mechanisms do we use to engage those communities that may feel disenfranchised. So, Yeah, which, um, which, know, dis- which disenfranchised communities, which voices do you think you are not giving enough uh, of an ear to? I think, well, one, to pick, one in particular to pick out are older adults. Um, you know, they're not going to be on your traditional platforms of social media, typically, um, and you're going to have to make a special effort to get to them and to make sure that they are engaged and that they're aware. You know, oftentimes we're doing things in city government and we think because the media's picked it up or it's blasted out on social media that people have a, a full opportunity to hear about it. And that's not necessarily so with some demographics, and you know, older adults are not up on those uh, platforms. And so we got to find uh, unique ways to get to them and to have those conversations. So uh, Jamie Gill has helped develop and lead Rhino, the River North Arts District. She has worked in urban planning and has a pretty distinct vision for development in Denver. Why are you the better choice if someone is concerned about the rapidly changing city, as you say, if someone is concerned about congestion? I think there are two reasons. One is the experience. Um, you know, you don't know what it means to react and to respond and then also be proactive on these issues until you're in. It's easy to have ideas, but not have accountability for actually implementing those ideas. And so Jamie has the position of being able to throw ideas out there. But the reality is, ask the question, where have you done this on a large scale? in terms of supervising people, in terms of making sure that those visions are implemented. And I believe that's where I'm distinguished, is that I know this city. Uh, I'm supervising, you know, the the city employees and working with them side by side and and making sure we're moving forward with our strategies. So I think that's that's, that's extremely important here. Two, uh, ultimately there's going to be a lot of talk about plans. You know, plans that I plan to do this, I plan to do that. And the reality is that a lot of things... Uh, the challenges that play this city, we have already done the planning, and we're now into the implementation phase. And so we need to express to the people of Denver that we all are going to have to, you know, be acknowledge the fact that we've changed rapidly, 
we must be patient, allow these strategies to take hold, to be implemented, and to help us, you know, bring balance to our community. So you're asking the voters for some patience here. Five city council races, it looks like, are also headed for a runoff. Uh, but results were much more decisive when it came to the Right to Survive measure, Initiative 300, which would have in part overturned the city's camping ban. Do you think the camping ban works? It, I believe it, it's a tool that as a city we have to have. Uh, let me tell you this, Ryan. We, we, we cannot act like there was a time when we didn't have a camping ban. And we saw uh, the efforts to take over our parks uh, through the Occupy Denver movement. We didn't have a tool, a progressive process in which to deploy uh, to move people along. We only had our curfews in place. Uh, as you go around the country, cities that don't have this tool, quite frankly, have embedded very deeply entrenched encampments, uh, creating health hazards. There's a typhus uh, breakout right now in Los Angeles. Uh, because of their inability and lack of tool to move people to direct services and to housing and shelter, uh, it is a tool. And I know that my opponent says she would repeal the camping uh, ordinance. If you do that, you might as well have passed 300 because you take away an important tool that has allowed us to move the uh, homeless who try to encamp in our city to direct services and to shelter or housing. Um, and so it's, not, it's never been about arresting people. It's never been about citations. It's about having that progressive process in place to where we can do verbal warnings, written warnings, and then ultimately uh, do more of an enforcement to move people. Um, because there are folks who... Uh, who are service protected. There's some people who have different reasons why they won't go into shelter, but we've got to have that tool in place uh, to protect them, to protect the homeless as well as the general public and surrounding communities. Mayor, thank you for being with us. I always like talking to my man anytime. He's the incumbent, Michael Hancock, and he faces a runoff June 4th against Jamie Gillis, who received a quarter of the vote to Michael Hancock's roughly 40 percent. If elected, Gillis would be the first woman to lead Denver. She is the former president of the River North Arts District. It's an industrial area of Denver that underwent a renaissance. And Jamie, welcome to our program. Thank you so much for having me this morning. So to win, you'll need to woo voters who chose other candidates, uh, be it Lisa Calderon, Penfield Tate. I wonder if you're asking those candidates to endorse you today. Well, I already made those phone calls last night, and I've asked every candidate that was in the race to meet with me this week and to work with me to see how we can bring voters to my side. Okay, but no answers yet. No answers yet. How will you bring their voters to your side? In a conversation we just had with Michael Hancock, he says it's unlikely they'll all go for you. Well, I, you know, I think going into this race last November, what we heard across the board and around the city is that people were very much looking for an option to the mayor. And I think it has taken some time for people to understand what all of us as candidates stand for and to take their pick on the best choice. But I do believe that there are quite a few people that still view this as we need a different leader than Mayor Hancock in office and will be willing to support me and and work with me to make sure that they see their vision and their issues reflected in my campaign as well. Why do you think Denver needs a different mayor? I think the mayor has had eight years on a significant growth trajectory and has had an opportunity to set a clear vision for the city and to think about how we're not just going to respond to the growth that's coming, but how are we going to harness it? 
how are we going to harness it to build a modern urban version of Denver to address quality of life, to address transportation and affordability, to address the growing homeless issues and other social issues that come with a growing population. I, I don't feel that the mayor has, has done that. We've been in a reactionary mode, and it's time to get proactive and start delivering. You talk about quality of life, and yet we know that many people have moved to Denver. Doesn't that tell us that the quality of life is high enough that it's a magnet? Well, it's a, it's a matter of whether we can sustain um, that type of growth. Um, ultimately, the economic sustainability of a city is predicated on whether people can afford to live here, whether companies can bring employees here. And we know going around the city that the cost of living, the congestion, and the fact that people feel really cut out from communicating with government is is creating a, a lot of stress for people all over the city. So it's a matter of whether or not that's actually sustainable if you're not investing in all the things that you need to support growth. You mentioned homelessness. Let's talk just a little bit about the camping ban, which I brought up with the incumbent, Mayor Hancock. Uh, Is the camping ban working? I don't think the camping ban was great policy when it was put into place. Now, I was adamantly opposed from the beginning to Initiative 300 because of what it would have done to our open spaces and our parks and our public spaces. The camping ban itself was a tool that was implemented largely in response to Occupy Denver. And if you read the language, it criminalizes people having things. Um, We can continue to move people to services and to housing, you know, but we don't need to be criminalizing and ticketing people for having things while they're living on our streets. Uh, Your voting record as a private citizen has come under scrutiny. You didn't vote in the general elections of 2010 and 2014, and I think missed the mayoral election in 2011. What message do you think that sends to Denver voters? Well, um, you know, I've been in Denver uh, for 13 years, and um, the period between 2010 and 2014, uh, I was living a third of the time in Denver, living and working here. We're also launching a company that was working in Asia, in Europe, in the UK, and a significant amount of time traveling. And so, you know, there's certainly uh, a lot of regret for not having been um, doing those, taking care of that, that civic responsibility. But there was also the reality that, um, you know, people can get involved in politics at any given time. And I don't think a voting record in and of itself needs to be um, front and center when I have been very civically involved and civically engaged on a number of issues in this city and elsewhere. So I hope people know I'm passionate about the issues. And this is a job interview essentially somebody to manage the city. Uh, You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and Denver mayoral candidate Jamie Gillis is with us. Uh, She'll face incumbent Mayor Michael Hancock in a runoff election June 4th. 
Uh, on the campaign trail, you've talked some about bringing streetcars back. Um, is that more than nostalgia? It is more than nostalgia. Uh, other cities around the country are reinvesting in streetcar networks where it makes sense. We know that there is some economic value to investing in some fixed rail systems. Ultimately, the appropriate location of an intra-city transit network and the tools that we need to deploy, be it streetcar, be it a mix of streetcar and bus rapid transit, will have to be work that we do with the community just to see where it makes the most sense to invest. Does it surprise you that Denver has never had a woman as mayor? It does. It does. And, you know, I I have been very clear through this campaign that this is not about me being the first woman mayor. This is about electing somebody that's qualified to take on a growing urban city. But I do think that there is, it is worthy of consideration what female leadership could bring to the office of Denver mayor. And what is that in just the last 30 seconds or so? Um, You know, ideally a a different perspective. Um, And I think being able to tackle and address some of the issues that have plagued city government, both from the mayor's office and throughout, of fairness, equality, um, some of the harassment issues, but also just a perspective that I am very proud of myself as a female leader of being incredibly inclusive, collaborative, and thoughtful about how we bring everybody to the table. Jamie, thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Denver mayoral candidate Jamie Gillis. She'll face incumbent Mayor Michael Hancock in a runoff election June 4th. And we'll be back in the next half hour with how parents talk to their kids about school shootings. Again and again and again. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Sam Brash, host of Purplish. It's a show about Colorado's democracy from member-supported CPR News. Big questions about state government, answers from CPR reporters, experts, and voters. I want to know what my fellow Coloradans think about things. I was a little surprised to hear him say he doesn't want to use kill committee. It's just a unanimous feeling around the table. Why can't this get fixed? Subscribe to Purplish wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The goal, of course, is to prevent a school shooting. But when one does occur, the response is key and training beforehand is critical. Let's get some perspective on this from Susan Payne. She's with the Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence. So the Douglas County Sheriff says deputies were at the school within two minutes of the initial emergency call. How does that match up in general with response times for school shootings? Well, I think that's what you want to see. It's what they prepare for and what they train for. And not all schools have school resource officers. Sometimes they have to hire private security. We have private schools and charter schools that are within school districts that don't always have an SRO on scene, but maybe using a different method of security in order to protect their students. But I think it's impressive to see the quick response time. It's also true that there was a law enforcement substation pretty close to that school. Uh, Talk to me about the training that law enforcement does, but also that educators do. Sure. Well, you know, in Colorado, many of the school districts here, including Douglas County, 
um, use the standard response protocol that was developed by I Love You Guys, the nonprofit after the Platte Canyon tragedy. And they drill and they train and they prepare for these things and they take it very seriously, but also try to put that training into place without trauma. So I think that's the mindset that any individual that works at a school has to have is what do we do in these incidents? They're going to rely on their lowest level of training. And I think that's when you see everybody proceeding with how they've been trained. You mentioned Platte Canyon. That was in 2006, uh, Platte Canyon High School. Sure. Actually, multiple hostages were taken in that incident. And, you know, obviously the response time was also very fast, but it continued to unfold as hostages were released and there were remaining two girls. And then Emily Keyes was killed in that incident. And so that resulted in a new kind of training. And and help us understand what that is. Well, her parents, John Michael Keyes and Ellen Keyes, focused on really understanding where some of the gaps were around creating a standard response. Um, And that's where they developed the standard response protocol. So what you heard is people saying, you know, that schools were on lockdown or they were locked out and securing the perimeter. But it also is the method that I know Douglas County and other districts train on to practice drills and to understand what your options are as a teacher. Do we continue to shelter in place with the doors locked or when do we evacuate and making that decision based on the circumstances? I think about the ripple effect of trauma from something like this. So uh, certainly you have all of the kids at that school. It's about 1,800. Uh, You have their parents. You have the kids at nearby schools that were on lockout or lockdown. And how this just reverberates, Susan. Well, I think we're in a different level of exposure. Um, I started getting calls from a parent that lost his son at the Parkland shooting and a mother that lost her daughter at Sandy Hook. And, you know, I think there is this ripple effect across our country. Um, There's a concern by everyone working in this framework of how do we restore a safe learning environment? How do we prepare to emotionally support those that have been traumatized, those that have been seriously injured. You're saying you were getting calls from folks across the country, given what was going on in Colorado. As this was unfolding, yes, from all over the country. Um, and two of the people that did get through were parents that lost their children in previous incidents praying for Colorado. Of course, you'll hear folks say prayer is not enough. Action is what is needed. Right. Well, and I think that's why the training is so intense here. I think you know, if you're looking at Douglas County School District, where we know we've brought congressional leaders since the Parkland tragedy to see how they train, to come see their operation. They have the school marshal program. You know, I think that's part of what we're trying to make sure that there's a, a framework of training and prevention throughout the country that's best practice. But in the end, you know, when it does happen here, I think that's where we're all like, this is right in our backyard once again here in Colorado. And that is Susan Payne with the Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence. Chris, parents want their kids to be safe and to feel safe. But school shootings, which just keep happening, rob families of that security. How should parents talk about that? Let's ask David Hulak. He's associate professor of school psychology at the University of Northern Colorado. He's also a father. And David, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. When it comes to drills and lockdowns and shootings, I think that parents and kids, frankly, might feel fatigued 
I mean, there was that perceived threat just about three weeks ago that closed Metro schools. Uh, what would you tell weary and wary parents? <laughs> that, that, that's a great question. Sometimes I think we focus too much on what parents should say to kids, as if as if parents need to come up with the right words to, uh, and, and that their words are the difference between a child having a healthy experience and a traumatic experience. Mm. And I would instead have people focus on the, have parents focus on what they do. I want to tell you what we did um, last night. Um, I get a text from one of my kids saying that they're home. When they got home, I told them to go play outside, and I wanted them to be so tired and exhausted that they were wet and muddy. Um, Point there, I wanted them to exercise. Um, And then when he came back in, it was time to do chores. Um, We cooked dinner. Um, I told the kids to get off of their phones and do their chores, something that we do every night. We had dinner. We did a... uh, an activity that we call Rosebud Thorn, where we have the kids talk about the best, worst, and worst parts of their day and something that they're looking forward to. Then we went for a walk. I read a story to one child. I read the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy to another child, and then we went to bed. In other words, it was a typical day. Um, I made time to be with every child. And that's the most important thing that I want to say here, that Parents need to be with their kids more than they need to worry about what they say to the kids. Now, for a parent who hears that and thinks, well, that sounds like denial to me, how do you reply? So it's, so, so uh, one of the things that we have trouble with sometimes is that we try to get a whole lot of information about these school shootings, when in reality, um, school uh, people who have died from gun deaths in schools is actually significantly lower in 2009, in 2018 at least, than it was in 1990. In other words, the facts that we have seem to suggest that schools are still very safe places. And I think the the, the flip side to that is that there may be kids who want to talk about it. If kids want to talk about it, I'm going to be there and I'm going to listen. And if we need to talk and keep uh, talking, then then we can do that. Um, But it's letting the kids decide what they want to say. For most kids, um, they may not want to talk about it. And if the kids do want to talk about it, then I'm certainly willing to be there to sit and listen and to talk about what their feelings are. So are you Um, saying saying to wait for a child? Let me just interrupt there. Are you saying to wait for the child to approach you? Often I am, Absolutely. Uh Um, my goal is uh, to provide extra hugs to make sure that they're exercising. Um, and, beca- and, and one of the things that we do seem to know is if people have had some sort of traumatic experience, the best way to deal with that is social connection and exercise. And so those are the most healing things that we can do, more so than saying the right thing. Mm. I'm just curious, David Hulak, you specialize in school psychology at UNC. Are school psychologists, you know, who are often in short supply, are they trained now in college specifically to deal with the effects of shootings or at least drills and lockdowns? I mean, are there like chapters in textbooks about this? There, there are many, many chapters. And what's ironic is that a number of the students that I'm working with today were in a crisis uh, prevention and intervention class at two o'clock yesterday afternoon. In other words, they were in the very class where they were training for these kinds of things. And the kinds of uh, training that we do focuses on threat assessments, 
which is how can we figure out um, if a student is a, is a threat um, of harm to others or, or harm to themselves. Themselves, right. And then we start to focus on things like, you know, how can we respond to these sorts of terrible events? And then we might say something like, how, how can we provide and identify kids who need extra help and who need extra support? Um, so those are really the levels that we do, assessing and trying to identify kids who might need help and then providing kids who need help. But goodness, that's a lot of weight to carry to be the one who uh, is tasked with identifying students who might be a harm to themselves or others. Um, you know, it's, it's, that's about the time we have. But in about 10 seconds, do you think that events like this get more people into the field of school psychology? I, I, I think they sometimes do, and especially the way that we frame it. This is a story of heroism, a story of teachers and first responders and kids who responded heroically and mental health professionals who are going to respond heroically now. Um, and I think that's really something we need to make sure that we focus on. We can do right. a lot of good in schools um, by both prevention and by responding to terrible events like this. He is David Hulak, specializes in school psychology at the University of Northern Colorado, speaking with us after the shooting at the STEM school, Highlands Ranch. As we've been reporting, several races in Denver are headed for a runoff, including the mayor's. Now, some curious history. We got a question through Colorado Wonders from Serena Fiore. She wants to know why Denver elects its mayor in May. We asked for help on this one from Brian Trembath. He's special collections librarian in Western history at the Denver Public Library. And he says the city set the election for May sometime around 1900. My opinion as to why they do it in May instead of November is that it's probably easier to do an election in the springtime than in the winter, especially in the early 20th century. So weather may have been a factor. Of course, other communities also have spring elections. But here's a twist that's unique to Denver. At one point, there wasn't an election. The city changed the process because of dissatisfaction with Robert Speer, who was mayor beginning in 1904. He made a point to beautify Denver with new parks, including Civic Center Park and the trail along Cherry Creek, but he also failed to do anything about vice, namely gambling and prostitution. And he had a very much live-and-let-live attitude that wasn't necessarily popular with, with everybody. And so critics got the city to change how the mayor was chosen in 1912. Instead of an election by the people, a commission of leaders like the fire chief and head of public safety did the picking. That change didn't last long, though. Spears' supporters reappointed him four years later. He was mayor again, and that commission was abolished. What do you wonder about? Send us your questions at cpr.org slash Colorado Wonders. Now, we wondered what's next when it comes to homelessness in Denver. Now that voters soundly defeated Initiative 300, that's the right to survive measure, it would have repealed Denver's urban camping ban, among other things. Let's begin this conversation with Denverites housing and hunger reporter Donna Bryson. Hello again, Donna. Hi, Ryan. What about this debate over 300 do you think most resonated with voters? I've been thinking back over the campaign. I think... Denver Homeless Out Loud, the group that got this on the ballot, might not have expected to win, but they certainly didn't expect to lose so decisively and to have it made clear so early in the evening. 
And I'm thinking back that there was maybe one clear reason to vote yes, because if you're looking at it as a human rights issue, I've talked to people living on the streets who talk about uh, just feeling of uncertainty, a feeling of being harassed by the police, a feeling of being asked to constantly move along. So we had that on the yes side. But on the no side, there were just so many reasons to vote no. There was uh, concern about whether this initiative was written so vaguely that it would keep service organizations from helping, from reaching out to people in homelessness. There was, uh, people are appalled at, uh, I think, the sight of of disorder on the streets, um, either here in Denver or uh, the no campaign kind of pointed our attention to Seattle and Portland and Los Angeles. I think that was part of it, too. And then, you know, I've spoken to people over the last couple of months who really speak with real anguish about this idea that if we vote yes, we're saying that's all that can be done about homelessness. And so all those things pile up and we can't ignore the money. Uh, yeah, the money to, in this campaign was lopsided. Groups opposed to 300 had nearly 20 times, I think, the funding of supporters. Yeah, I'm not even sure if lopsided is a word there, but it's it's hard to ignore. Uh, you know, I look at the mail I got. I've got lots of mail from Together Denver. I don't think I saw anything from the Yes campaign. Is there some sense that at least the conversation around 300 elevated the issue of homelessness in Denver? It, I think the issue was pretty elevated. <laughs> the issue of housing in Denver is was top of the list for many of the candidates, uh, and homelessness is part of that. It, uh, it Certainly 300 didn't hurt, but I think the issue was on people's minds. And I suppose much remains to be seen based on who is elected Denver, uh, Denver mayor and to the city council about how things move forward, huh? Yeah, we're looking at a runoff with uh, Jamie Gillis and Mayor Hancock. I'm looking back over the campaign again, there was one forum in which uh, Jamie Gillis, she she was not supporting 300. She didn't think it was the way forward, but she also doesn't support the camping ban. And she spoke about um, authorized camping for the city. On the other hand, Mayor Hancock uh, supported the camping ban, still does. Um, when I talked to his campaign about this idea of authorized camping, they wanted to make clear that he doesn't think allowing people to sleep on the streets, sleep under tents is dignified, but it's something he would at least talk about. Okay, Donna Bryson, stick around. I want to bring in a voice from the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. Kathy Alderman is VP of Communications and Public Policy there. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Ryan. I'll note that your organization was neutral on this right to survive measure. Uh, but do I have it right that you still want to overturn the camping ban? Absolutely. We feel that the camping ban is unproductive and um, and oftentimes immoral, um, and it does nothing to actually move people into safe alternative spaces. So we've actually called on the city to cease enforcement of the camping ban until such time as they can guarantee that people have safe alternative spaces to go. Does that just mean that there's not enough shelter? Not enough shelter, not enough appropriate shelter. Um, there's just a lot of people that need something different than what's offered right now. They need a place to store their belongings. They need a place to bring their pets, to be with their partners, and maybe a place that's a little um, less traumatic than some of our current shelter situations. And we really uh, think the city needs to make a commitment, make an investment, and uh, start um, making sure that those places are available for everybody while we wait for the critical housing resources to come online. Can you help us understand the kind of chaotic place that a shelter can be and that some might want to avoid, particularly those with PTSD? 
Sure. Shelters, um, you know, oftentimes are large congregate areas um, where people, you know, don't have separate sleeping spaces. They may be right next to another person. They also don't have places um, oftentimes for folks to store their belongings, again, you know, to bring their pets. And um, they can be very isolating um, and, you know, sometimes noisy. You're sleeping in a large room with a lot of people. So we think that in order to, you know, respect the dignity of folks that are forced to sleep outside, we need to really turn our attention and turn the resources into creating alternative spaces. And those alternative spaces might be some kind of sanctioned um, encampment area that is a partnership between the community and the city. And is that before you get to the construction of apartments or, you know, there's been the the whole tiny homes movement? In other words, do you see that as a sort of stopgap? I, I think that having alternative shelter is critical. We're in an emergency right now where way too many people are being forced to sleep outside. So we must make that investment and we must find those alternative spaces. We also need to look at transitional housing options um, and tiny homes is, is one way to do that. Not necessarily to the scale that is needed, but it's certainly an alternative. But obviously we need to really focus our efforts on getting more um, supportive housing resources and affordable housing resources online as quickly as possible. In the debate over Initiative 300, there was a lot of pointing to other cities. Uh, Look how terrible it is in Los Angeles, for instance. Let's not create such a situation in Denver. Do you point to a city anywhere on Earth that has cracked this nut, though? I'm not sure that we know of a city that has cracked the nut, but I think we have some cities that have implemented some um, best practices. For instance, um, Houston and San Francisco have both implemented navigation centers, which give people places to go during the day and help them to connect to the resources they may need to move them into housing. Wait, help, help me understand that. So it's during the day, I don't have a home or perhaps a job. And what is a navigation center doing? So a navigation center is a place where people can go um, so that they're not just, you know, wandering the streets of of any given city, um, but they can go and they can talk to folks about, you know, what it would look like to get um, connected to a housing resource, what would it look like to get connected to employment services, um, you know, getting online and doing some of your own research. Um, right now, our, we don't have very many spaces in Denver for folks to be during the day. Um, we have very few day shelters. And so that means that people are checking in in the evening to a place and checking out in the morning um, and then kind of left, um, you know, without any uh, support or resources during the day. So I think a navigation center is a good first start. Yeah, give me one um, more idea. Um, I, you know, I, as I mentioned, we, we need some transitional um, and bridge housing options. We need places that people can go to for 30 days or 60 days um, while they get you know, back on their feet or get connected to the resources that they need. Right now, we don't have a lot of that transitional housing, and it's always easier to help somebody find a permanent housing solution if they are in a stable location for, a, you know, a longer period of time than, than a single night. Okay, I'd like to bring Donna Bryson of Denverite back in at this point. Uh, Donna, I, I think that a lot of this connects to the question of nimbyism, not in my backyard. Is that an obstacle to achieving some of what we're hearing there from Kathy Elderman? Well, I've sat in over the last couple of months over a lot of community meetings about tiny houses for a, a plot in Gloville, and I heard some uh, some really entrenched ideas about what it means to be homeless and uh, some really angry, <laughs> angry reaction to accepting people who are living in homeless into a neighborhood. And yeah, that does need to be approached. Uh, Robin Kanich, who's uh, 
just, I, I think, pretty much reelected for city councilwoman at large, raised this during the campaign as well. That, that was her first point when she talks about homelessness is that we have to have tiny villages or, or these options in every neighborhood. And we have to to kind of address these, this pushback from neighborhoods. It's not going to be easy. I'm not so sure about Robin Kanich. Just looking at the numbers, Debbie Ortega, I think that's going to be a runoff. Do I have that uh, No, top two, there's no runoff for the Top two. The, okay, but uh, Debbie Ortega was in the lead. Yeah, but the top two. So and I think Robin was second. Ah, for council members at large. Yeah. Thank you for clarifying that, Donna, yeah. as we okay. sort through this live. Um, I, I, I guess, uh, Kathy Alderman, I'll give you the last word here. How do you move forward in terms of policy with either the same administration or the, the, a new administration? Sure. So we've called on the current administration to um, invest in the homelessness system. We uh, asked them to invest about $50 million um, annually and that this investment needs to be made immediately. Um, We're working with the current administration to um, look to see if those dollars can be found in the current um, city budget. And if they can't be, then we're going to look at 2020 for a ballot measure. We think that it is long overdue for the city of Denver to invest in a um, homelessness service system that is responsive to all of the needs that we're seeing on the street. And if we have a new administration, we would push for the same. We would um, want to sit down with um, any newly elected officials to really define the problem, um, get to the number that we know we need, um, and get to the services and shelter spaces that we know we need. And again, if you know the current administration or the new administration doesn't feel like it can address the issue, then we would also um, look to the 2020 ballot to let the voters um, make the decision. I think one thing we heard during this um, election cycle is that people really do want to see the city of Denver address homelessness in a compassionate way and in a resourced way. And so I think we have a path forward um, to have uh, Denver uh, weigh in on on how we address this issue. So something like a sales tax, perhaps? I'm not sure what the funding source is. We're kind of just starting to explore that. Um, but I think, so, you know, some kind of dedicated funding stream that we can count on, that we can plan on, and that we can make sure, you know, actually makes improvements to people's lives. Thanks uh, for being with us. We appreciate your time, both of you. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. So we heard from Kathy Alderman, Vice President of Communications and Public Policy with the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, and Donna Bryson. She covers housing and hunger for Denverite, which is now a part of Colorado Public Radio. We talked about homelessness in the city and county of Denver in light of the defeat of Initiative 300 on the ballot. That was the right to survive measure. Okay, finally today, some feedback in loud and clear. We should give credit where credit is due. In a story about Duke Ellington coming to Denver, I said Ellington wrote, take the A train. Not so. It was his longtime collaborator, Billy Strayhorn. Thanks to listener Richard Ray, who's also a retired CPR classical host, for alerting us to the error. And if you're curious, the A train refers to the New York City subway line which was brand new when Strayhorn wrote this song in 1939. All right, that's Colorado Matters for today from CPR News. You can follow CPR News, of course, on social media, on air and online. Thanks for spending time with us, with executive producer Carl Bielek and Alexandra McMahon. I'm Ryan Warner. 
This is CPR News.